Well, it is so good to see you all. We are wrapping up our series that we've been in for the last uh, three weeks. Today's the fourth week of that. Marriage by Design is the final week. Everybody can, can say, yay, or not. It's up to you. Uh, somebody told me, they said, how long is this marriage series going to go? And I said, well, we're wrapping up this, this Sunday. And they, they said, oh, good. And I said, what is it, you know, is it, is it bad? Has it been bad? And they said, no, no, no. It's just that, you know, I was expecting my wife to be the one that really needed to hear all that was said. Um, but it turns out it, this was for me. The message was for me. And I'm just, I can't handle any more conviction, they said. So, hey, that, that's God. That's not me, okay? But uh, I've enjoyed doing this series with you throughout the series. Uh, we've been considering that marriage is by design. Marriage is by design. And the last couple weeks, we've zeroed in and we've specifically looked at the different responsibilities and roles that God did design for every husband and wife to have independently of each other, but the goal of that being that they would come together in their roles, in their responsibilities, and that by coming together, they would create the beautiful picture of marriage uh, that God designed. Uh, that's, that's the goal, that I'm going to be doing what I'm called to do as a husband, loving my wife as Christ loved the church sacrificially. She is going to be fulfilling her role that Christ gave her which is to submit to me as unto the Lord. And that's what we've been talking about. Hard to do, right? High calling on those things. But it's nonetheless what we are called to do if we're in Christ. And we have the power of the Spirit empowering us, equipping us, guiding us in that. We don't have to go through that alone. It's great news. It's great news. Um, But as we wrap up today, I want us to be reminded of the fact that not only do we have an original designer for marriage, but we also have an original enemy. We have an original enemy. And that original enemy hates, hates God's original design for marriage. He hates marriage, and he hates us. And he constantly tries to damage and twist and pervert and destroy God's design for marriage. That's what he's after. He's after our ruin. This is what the Lord Jesus said about this original enemy. In John 8, 44, he says this of Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar. And the father of lies. That's the original enemy that we have. And those characteristics that Jesus mentioned are clearly on display in the opening pages of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3. So that's where we're going to be. Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Go ahead and get there on your device or in your physical copy of God's Word. Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Man and woman have been created... Marriage has been instituted. Don't know how long it's been from the marriage to this instance. We don't know that for sure. Could be a very little time. Could be a substantial amount of time. We really can't be dogmatic. But what we do know is that the good, beautiful, perfect story that started came to a screeching halt. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, did God really say? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Holy Spirit, we are removed from our original parents by time, by experience, by culture, but we are every bit as susceptible to the voice of the original enemy. As we go forward in this message and talking about your word and talking about the original enemy that we have, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would awaken our minds and our hearts, that you would give us the ability to hear from you and to apply what you say to us by your strength. In Jesus' name I pray and for his name's sake, amen. So, we see here the original enemy, he doesn't waste any time, he goes right at our original parents, right at the first human beings, right at the first husband and wife. Though it's not explicitly said, this serpent is obviously Satan. We know that from other areas of Scripture. And he absolutely hated God's creation, man and woman, because they were created in his image. And they were given dominion over all the earth. They were raised to a place of prominence by God, a place he wanted. Remember, that's why he was kicked out of heaven to begin with. He said, I will ascend above the Most High. And when that didn't work, he was cast down to earth. And, and maybe, just maybe, he thought, all right, well, this will be my kingdom now. Uh-oh, here's man and woman. Now they're going to be the rulers. So he, he right away began to hate man and woman, Adam and Eve. And he knew he couldn't become God. He knew that wasn't going to work. So he decided, maybe I'll get man and woman to want what I wanted and to try what I tried. I'll get them to totally rebel against God's authority over their life. And by doing that, I'll defeat them as well. I'll drive a great big wedge between this happy home, this, this perfect union We'll see how long it lasts. And so he goes to work. And his strategy is so clearly seen. And his strategy is just not original at all anymore because he just keeps doing the same thing over and over and over. What he did to them and the strategy that we see here is the same strategy he employs against you and against me and against our marriages. Let's look at what that strategy is. It's right there in the text. First, his strategy, the, the enemy's strategy, is to cause doubt. To cause doubt. You see that in verse 1. Did God really say? Did he really say what you think he said? Did he really mean what he said? 
That's exactly what Satan does to you and to me. What he did to Eve. Did God really say you can't eat any of the, the fruit of the trees here? Is that really what he meant, Eve? Now, now think back. Maybe you heard it wrong. Maybe you read something into it that wasn't intended. He does the same thing to you and to me. To, to the wife, to the women, sometimes the enemy will say to you, did God really mean you have to submit to that guy? I mean, look at what he just did. Look at what he just said. Look at how lazy he is. Look at how many times he's let you down. Did God really mean for you to submit to him in everything? Sometimes he'll try this. For those of you wives who have been married to an unbelieving husband, or maybe you still are, you're saved, but your husband clearly isn't. The enemy will actually even come at you with that, and he'll say, well, wait a second. Didn't God say that we're not to be unequally yoked together? Aren't we supposed to only be married to a Christian spouse? And certainly, the Bible does clearly say, do not be unequally yoked. But what if, what if you, admittedly, not with wisdom, went ahead and made that decision and you're married to an unbelieving spouse? Are you just supposed to reject that now and just start over? The enemy might make you think that. He might say, you know, maybe, maybe you should go ahead and, and just get a divorce and find a nice Christian husband or a nice Christian wife, whatever the case may be, because that's really God's intention, right? So you, you don't have to worry about submitting to an unbelieving husband. You're free from that. But the Word of God says in 1 Peter that by submitting to your husband, wives, even if they are an unbelieving husband, if you do what you are commanded to do, and you submit as unto the Lord that we looked at last week, Ephesians 5, that what's going to happen is God's going to use your submission to your husband, even though he is an unbeliever, he's going to use your testimony to convict your unbelieving husband, and maybe, just maybe, that's what he's going to use to bring your unbelieving husband into belief. So, Right there is where Satan could possibly twist even Scripture to get you to disobey what is a clear command and a clear mandate. Did God really say? He's going to say to you husbands, did God really mean for you to love your wife to the same degree that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it? I mean, let's face it, that's, that's impossible. You can't do that. Why, why just set yourself up for failure? He's going to be whispering these things. Did God really say? Love no matter what. Submission no matter what. Did God really say? He's going to cause doubt, just like he did with Eve. Secondly, he's going to speak lies. Outright, total, blatant, obvious lies. You see that in verse 4, where he says, No, you will not die. God's lying to you. That's not going to happen. Trust me. He's going to speak outright lies. He's going to be saying to us, husbands and wives, you deserve better. You, you, you're settling for second best here. You're not expected to really give up your, your, what you want for the sake of the other. You're not really expected to, to just completely 
give up all that you want to hold on to and all that you want to pursue for the sake of the other person. You don't have to sacrifice. That's not really what's intended here. That's not what God's calling for. You don't know how to really give your spouse what they need, so there's no point. Just live life for yourself. You're entitled to be your own person. You're entitled to have things the way you want it to to be. God really wants your happiness far above your obedience. Lies. On and on and on I could go with example after example. He speaks lies just like he did to Eve. And then lastly, he brings accusation. He brings accusation. Verse 5, where he says, No, the reason God says this, it's not to protect you. It's not out of love. It's because he's jealous. God's jealous. And he doesn't want you raising up to his level because he knows that's what's going to happen. If you eat of that fruit, you're going to be like him. And he's just, he really has an inferiority complex. He doesn't want what's best for you. He's holding you back. He's keeping you from experiencing all that you could experience if you just gave in to what you want. So he brings accusation. And he does the same thing over and over and over. The enemy is not very original. He is very consistent, but he is not very original. And when Adam and Eve listened to him, as they did, because we know the rest is history, Eve looks at the fruit. She says, wow, that looks pretty good. I think, I think this serpent is right. I think God has been holding me back. She takes it. She eats it. Her eyes are open. She gives it to her husband who's there next to him, not doing a very good job of leading the family. Right, guys? I mean, he's the one that should be right there saying, Eve, what are you doing? You can't do that. We can't do that. Eve, I'm not letting you do that. I'm not letting you sin against God. We're not going to do that. This serpent is a liar. He's manipulating. He's accusing our perfect, loving father. Stop. That's what he should have done. But instead, he's like, oh, oh, okay, Eve. <laughs> you know. What, what, whatever you want, sweetie. I just want to make you happy. You know. Come on. Totally dropped the ball of leadership there. But that's what happened. So Eve eats. Adam eats. Their eyes are opened. Not in a good way. Their eyes are opened to now what is a perpetual sinful condition. A perpetual rebellious state. That's what happened. And when Adam and Eve listened to Satan, the original enemy, and they did what he was enticing them to do, it tore a huge hole in the perfect unity, the perfect fellowship, the perfect love that they had one with another and with their creator. Because that was the original design for marriage. God originally set up that man and woman, husband and wife, would be completely joined together, completely unified together. Perfect fellowship, perfect love, no selfishness, no self-centeredness. No personal agenda that competed with the other. Total unity. Complete, perfect love. Wouldn't that be amazing to experience that every day? I mean, think about what our marriages would be like if we didn't have any selfishness anymore. If we didn't have, you know, me as the husband pursuing my agenda and the wife pursuing hers and just clashing and and disagreements and misunderstandings. If we didn't have that, how amazing would our marriages be? What would the divorce rate be? 
Zero. Right? God's original design was for that. And it wasn't limited to the husband and wife relationship. God's original design, his desire, and what happened up until the point of this fall was also perfect unity, fellowship, and love with him. God actually came down and walked with Adam and Eve through the garden. We know that happens because in verse 8, right after Adam and Eve have sinned, they realize, "Uh uh-oh, we sinned, we've we've rebelled, now we're in rebellion against God, he's going to come after us. Immediately they went from loving and trusting their perfect father to now fearing and disdaining him. And so they hid and they made together, they, they put fig leaves around themselves, not just to cover their nakedness, but actually to prepare themselves for battle. What they covered themselves in, these these fig leaves, were actually, in the original Hebrew, it's actually the same word used for armor. And so they realized that now I have a judge before me instead of a father, and I don't want his judgment. I'm going to prepare myself to stand against whatever is coming, as foolish as that was. And we see God coming after them not as a a vindictive, now angry deity, but one of love and of tenderness and of compassion. And he says, Adam, where are you? We see God immediately pursuing his fallen creation. Verse 8 of Genesis 3, it says, And God came looking for them. I mean, that's my paraphrase. God came seeking them out in the cool of the day and at the time of the evening breeze. And the idea, the implication, it's not explicit, but I really believe that was not the first time by any means that that had happened. I believe that was the, the practice, the habit. I believe that the perfect God was fellowshipping with his perfect creation every single day in a physical way. What a picture that is. You know, I love, I love the time of summer of a summer day when the heat kind of fades away and, and it's evening and you, you feel that gentle breeze. Don't you love that time? Especially at the beach, it's, it's more pronounced. But even here, it's like that, you know, that 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock time during the summer. Things just cool down. Things quiet down. It's like creation just kind of... And there's this breeze and you see the leaves rustling. Imagine, just picture what it would be like picture in your mind. See it. See it in your mind. That the sun is going down. It's that perfect color where it just, it touches all the greenery just right. And that breeze comes in, that that perfect breeze. It's not cold, but it's not hot. Just that soothing breeze. and, And you feel it. You hear it rustling the leaves. But it's not just the leaves that you hear rustling. If you're Adam and Eve, you actually hear Soft footsteps. And you know, Father's here. Father's here. Let's go, let's go for our, our evening walk with Father. And they walked together with God in perfection, unspoiled, total unity. Until they didn't. Until sin entered. And it totally wrecked and ruined all of that. 
Not only did it, it drive an incredible wedge between their creator and them, but it drove an incredible wedge between the two of them. We see that on display as God questions them. What is this you've done? How do you know you're naked, Adam? Who told you? How, how is it that you're able to be aware of your condition now? And Adam, another win for Adam, not. He says, it's this woman you gave me. So right away, blame, blame, blame. And, and see, he's, he's totally embodying what the enemy did to them. He's not owning up to his responsibility. He's shifting blame. He's, he's bringing accusation against the one he is supposed to protect. The one he's supposed to cherish. The one he's supposed to love sacrificially. The one that... Previously, before this sin, he was ecstatic about, remember he said, at last, this one, this one finally is what I need. Oh, Father, thank you for your your blessing, your amazing gift of this, this woman. Now it's this woman. You see what sin does? Sin changes our relationship. It twists it. It manipulates it. It takes it from being something beautiful and great to something we actually can resent and cast blame on. It completely tore a hole in all that they had with God and with each other. This fall, this sin, this listening to the original enemy. What about us? What about what happens to us when we make The tragic choice, the foolish choice to listen to the enemy rather than to the Spirit of God, who we have if we are in Christ. Well, it's the same thing. Same thing's going to happen. He's not going to do something different, really, from what he did with them. It's going to be the same strategy the enemy uses. Yeah, he's going to customize it. He's going to make it maybe a little bit more specific to you in ways that he knows he can get you that's different from me, but the same strategy at the heart of it is going to be exactly what he did with Adam and Eve. It's the same thing. He's going to cause doubt. He's going to speak lies. He's going to bring accusation. And if we listen to him, like Adam and Eve listened to him, if we do that, then what's going to happen is that we're going to start to project bitterness and disappointment and a sense of entitlement, we're going to project that onto God and we're going to say, maybe God is holding me back. Maybe God is keeping me from something that would really be enjoyable. Maybe God doesn't have my best at heart. If we listen to the enemy, those are the thoughts that are going to start circulating in our head. And then we're going to project it toward our relationship with one another. We're going to say, oh, why did I have to end up with this? Why did this become my life? I mean, that's where, sadly, some couples get to. Uh, I've heard that many times across from my desk in different places at different times, where you go from being head over heels in love with the other, with your spouse, to basically not being able to even stand being in the same room longer than five minutes. It's happened. It happens. It's happened to you, some of you. It happens to those in your family. There's some of you dealing with that right now. If, you, if you're not dealing with that, you have. And that may be your story in the past. 
It's so easy. It is so easy. And the thing is, you never think it's going to happen to you. You never do. We always think that we're immune to other people's problems until it becomes our problem. I mean, most husbands and wives, when they stand up here and they're smiling at each other and they're as happy as can be and they're full of love and full of life, I mean, they don't come down from this stage saying, well, that was nice. Now I guess we're just going to fall apart in our relationship. You know? I mean, no one sets out to get married saying, I want to get married just so that I can just throw it all away and have a horrible, terrible divorce. No one sets out with that in mind. Nobody does that. So what happens along the way? Doubt, fear, listening to lies, speaking lies, being less than truthful with one another, being less than truthful with God, bringing accusation that does not belong at the foot of the person you're you're leaving it with, blaming each other for problems that neither one of you created or are, are really responsible for, taking things out on one another, leaving anger unchecked, not being real with one another, not keeping each other accountable, not spending time together before God, in prayer, in Bible reading, not serving together. Those things, all of those things and more contribute to a slow erosion. It never, ever happens just overnight that a marriage crumbles. It's never what what happens. It's always erosion here, erosion there, slow fade, slow decay, not dealing with issues as they come up, not having a plan in place to be proactive, being reactive instead of proactive. All of these things can contribute together to an amazing, incredible attack on the home and on the marriage relationship. And if left undealt with, it will, in fact, cause even the best of marriages to crumble. No one is immune to the enemy's attack. No one. We're all susceptible to his strategy. So are we, are we hopeless? Are we helpless against all that? Is it just, you know, is it just our doom? You know, we have nothing to come at this enemy with? No, exactly. No, absolutely not. Nothing could be further from the truth. We have a counter strategy, totally accessible, constantly available. Here's what our counter strategy is. You see the triangle? You've probably seen this before in some way or some fashion. You've got husband on one side. You've got the wife on another. You've got Jesus at the top. I want you to write in there, though, with your, with your pen or, or whatever you have, in the middle of the, middle of the triangle, write Jesus at the middle. Write Jesus in the middle. Because not only should Jesus be the person, the main person that we pursue, he should be, listen to me, husband and wives, Jesus should be the main person and the relationship with him should be the main relationship that you pursue. Okay? Even more than pursuing one another, which we should. Talked about that the very first week in our series. Pursue one another, please. Husbands, pursue your wives. 
just as much as you ever did before she became your wife. Wives, pursue your husband. Keep doing that. And pursue your husband and wife relationship above and beyond any other human relationship. But above even your marriage. Above and beyond even pursuing each other, spouses. You need to pursue Jesus first and foremost. He needs to be your main pursuit. But he, he, he shouldn't just be your main pursuit. He should also be the engine that drives you. He should be at the very core of your marriage. He should be at the heart of it. He's not just the person that you pursue and draw close to. He's the source of power that drives your pursuit of each other. You can't do it on your own. You will always fall short. I will too. So Jesus needs to be who we pursue and who we depend on to pursue and love each other the way we're intended, the way God designed for us to. The closer that a husband and a wife get to Jesus, the closer I get to him, the closer Leanne gets to him, the closer we get to him on our own in our individual walk with him, the more our walk with each other intersects. The closer I'm going to get to her and the closer she's going to get to me. The more on guard we're going to be against the enemy's attack if we're pursuing him individually and together. And some very, very practical ways of doing this. I already mentioned it just a few seconds ago in what happens when we avoid these things. But here's what what we could do practically. Each of us, every marriage can do this. We can pursue these things that will be a very, very practical help in keeping us aligned properly with God, with with Jesus primarily, and with one another. Time in God's Word. That's individually. I need to be in, in this Word myself, for myself. Leanne, as my wife, she needs to be in this Word on her own, for her own walk. But then we need to also have time where we come together around God's Word. And let me just be the first to admit and be honest and transparent with you. We don't do this nearly as much as we should in our home. Okay? I am not saying we've got this down. Like, follow our example and you'll be really good. No, not at all. No, we're horribly inconsistent with this. We need to do better. I need to do better. And husbands, let me be real with you again. Do not expect, do not wait for, and do not let your wife be the one that calls for time and the word together. Lead your wife in that way. Lead your home in that way. And I'm saying that to myself too. Okay? We are responsible for the spiritual leadership of our marriage and our whole family. So we need to lead in that way. And I, back to the very... Uh, Back to the second week in our series where, where I said, hey, church, pray for, pray for the husbands in this church. And so many of you committed to doing that. Thank you so much. Specifically make that part of what you pray for us, church. Okay? As you're praying for us husbands, pray in this way, specifically. Not just that we will love our wives the way that we're supposed to, but that we will lead our wives and our family the way we're supposed to. And that part of that, the big, a big part of that, needs to be God's Word, time in it together. So pray that we will do that, that we'll take the initiative. Okay? Time in God's Word, individually and together. Also prayer, that's another huge practical um, strategy 
and keeping ourselves aligned with Jesus and with each other, all of which contribute to being on guard against the attack of the enemy. Prayer. I need to be on my knees, on my face before God. And I need to have a continual conversation. Prayer is not just, I say amen and that's it until the next time I pray. Prayer is, if you say amen, you just pick it right back up again as soon as you say amen. Prayer is an ongoing attitude and a mindset. It's an ongoing conversation. And we need to be in that moment after moment, 24-7. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. It's perpetual. So I need to pray constantly about everything in my life individually, and so does my wife. But then we need to come together and pray together. There is power in that. Remember Jesus' promise? Where two or three are gathered in my name, what happens? What's his promise? Say it louder. He's present. I'm there in the midst of them. I'm with you. I've heard that all over the place. Yeah, you're all right. Jesus promised where two or three are are gathered together in my name, I'm right there in the midst of them. That applies to the husband and wife having their own prayer time. The Jesus, your captain, your master, your savior, your Lord, your anchor in your marriage, he's going to be right there in your midst. It's It's a sweet, powerful time. And again, we don't do that nearly as much as we should. Okay, we all need to do that, and we all could do better in that. Prayer, individually and together. And then here's another practical thing that's much, much harder to stomach, much harder to actually do, because it's awkward and it's uncomfortable, and maybe you might just get into some things that cause some very deep conversation and discussion. How about confessing sin to one another? Whoa, Right? Well, that's what we're called to do. James chapter 5, confess your sins to one another. That includes husbands and wives. What better way to keep an open book and a transparent communication and relationship with one another than being real and saying, you know what, I love you so much and I want to be so honest with you that I'm going to confess to you I, I had a, a horrible attitude against you that maybe you didn't even realize. I, I've had bitterness toward you because of something that happened I mean, a month ago, and I'm just never let it go. Or I lied to you today. I said I was going to do this, and I, I didn't do it, and you asked about it, and I said I did, but I really didn't. Whatever, you know, fill in the blank. Confessing of sin to one another. Ouch. Uncomfortable, painful even, but necessary. And again, that's, that's not just with each other. We've got to be constantly confessing our sin to our Savior as well. Because 1 John 1, 8 says, If any of you say you do not have sin, you are a liar. And the truth is not in you. Verse 9, though, beautiful, beautiful verse. But if we confess our sin, agree with God that we have sinned, admit what he already knows, and say, yep, here's where I've sinned, here's what I've sinned in, I'm not going to hold it back. God, yeah, I've done that. I'm confessing my sin to you, the promise. But if we confess our sin, he, God, is faithful, faithful to forgive our sin and, and is the best part of that whole verse, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's great, isn't it? That not only are you forgiven of your sin, God doesn't stop there. He cleans you up from it. That's what happens as we confess our sin to him. But it's also confessing our sin to one another. 
And then lastly, what I could suggest to you on this as far as practical things, uh, in your pursuit of the Savior, in your pursuit of one another, all of which guard against the attack of the enemy, is to serve together. Serve together. Serve the Savior together. Don't let it be that my husband has a ministry or, yeah, that's my wife's ministry. Now, that doesn't mean we can't have our own ministries. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we both need to be jumping into ministry together. We both need to be serving the body together, serving the Savior together, serving others together. There is this great bonding that happens when a husband and a wife serve the Lord together. It's beautiful. I can tell you from personal experience, there's nothing like serving the Lord together with your soulmate. It's just incredible. So I encourage you to pursue that. Pursue that in in whatever way God leads you to. And just do it. Do it together. Look for opportunities to serve together. And in doing all of that, uh, we will find ourselves drawing closer and closer to Jesus and closer and closer to one another. It will happen. Here's the other aspect of our counter strategy that we have against the strategy of the enemy. It's realizing that we have a, an enemy who walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5.8, but it's realizing and remembering that there is a much bigger lion that we have, which is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he has overcome the enemy. He's already overcome, and he's given you that same victory. He's given you the victory that is his, that he won by sacrificing himself and conquering sin, conquering Satan. He gives you and me the same victory in our own individual lives and in our marriages. You do not have to fall prey to the enemy's attack. You do not have to give in. You do not have to take his attacks laying down. You're not helpless. You're not hopeless. You are victorious. Not in and of yourself, but through the Savior, the great Lion of the tribe of Judah who overcame for you. So, the second aspect of our counter strategy, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want all of us to do. Be mindful of the enemy. Okay, we need to do that. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant, be alert, be awake. Don't be asleep because your enemy, the devil, does walk around like a roaring and literally the Greek there is ravenous, starving with hunger lion, seeking, pursuing, looking for whom he can pounce on and devour up. That's what we're called to do. We do need to be aware of and mindful of the enemy. We have to be. So many times we treat Satan like a kitty cat instead of a lion. And then we wonder, what happened? How did I fall victim to his attack? Well, maybe because you weren't taking him as seriously as you should. Maybe you weren't looking out for his strategy. He's not a little kitty cat. He's a roaring, ravenous lion. Wanting your ruin. Wanting the ruin of your marriage. Hating God's design for your marriage. So be mindful of the enemy, please, but but be more mindful of the Savior. You hear me on that? As much as I want you and need you and, and, and want myself and need for myself to be mindful of the enemy, we need to do that. But please, church, let's be more mindful of the Savior who conquered our enemy. 
And let's believe it. And let's, let's embrace the victory that he wants to share with us in our own individual lives and in our marriages. And here's the last bit of good news I want to share with you before we close. I know that there are some here today, and probably more that I don't know, that have had a marriage either totally fall apart and end, tragically in divorce, or a marriage that is barely hanging on by a thread, maybe already separated. I know that there are some in this room right now who are dealing with incredible hurt and pain in the context of a marriage. And if it's not you, I know you have people in your life that fall in that category. And the closer you are to them, the more it's going to hurt you and the more you're going to feel helpless. But here's, here's, just, here's the great news I want to say, say to you. We've seen today that we have an original enemy who hates the design that God set out for marriage. He hates the designer. He hates his design. And he hates those that are part of that design, that marriage that God set up. He hates it. And Satan is not just a liar, but he is a murderer, as we saw in John 8, as I read there at the beginning. He murdered the marriage relationship. He destroyed that at the beginning um, as far as what it was. He has murdered countless other relationships, other marriages. He is a murderer. He's a destroyer. Satan is really good in the, at being in the uh, demolition business. Really good at it. But our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the designer of marriage, as good as Satan is at demolition, Jesus is infinitely better at restoration. And I really believe, I really believe this, that if you are in Christ and your spouse is in Christ, then no matter how low you might be right now today, if each of you will humble yourselves, you'll get on your face before the Lord, you'll confess sin individually and together, you'll pursue one another the way you're meant to, you'll make that decision that I am going to pursue my spouse in the power of the Spirit, not in my power. I'm going to forgive my spouse in the power of the Spirit, not in my power. I'm going to love my spouse, not in my power, but the Spirit's power. I'm going to submit to my spouse the way I'm called to, not in my power, but in the Spirit's power. If we would all commit to those things, then I believe with all my heart we will see the, the Savior, the designer of marriage, show us how good He is at restoration. I really believe it. I hope you do too. And if your marriage is how it needs to be and how it should be, then praise God. Give him thanks. Give him praise because that's not from you. That's him working in your marriage. But, but don't just sit on that and keep all that to yourself. Take what you know is the secret to your success, your relationship with Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, and go and And minister to other people with that. Encourage your your friend or your family member that you know are Christians but are just struggling and crumbling in their marriage. And and encourage them. Speak truth into them. Those of you who have family or friends that are struggling in their marriage but they're not saved, then be bold and say, look, you can read all the marriage books and go to all these counseling seminars 
until you drop, but nothing's going to change until you are made alive by the Savior I know. Let me introduce you to Him. Be bold with the answer you have and give that same answer to them. Because the enemy is in the demolition business and he's good at it. But but the Savior, the Lord Jesus, is in the restoration business and there is no one better. He's the best. He's the best. Let me pray for you. We've covered a lot of ground in this series. Some of it's been hard to hear, but I believe it's all been necessary to hear. I believe that God has wanted all of us to be reminded of these truths That he's wanted us to see his original design for marriage and to to make the decision to live in our marriage by that design, his design. But as I just said, no matter how much you may want to, and no matter how much you may try, you will not succeed apart from Jesus Christ. He is the key. He is the answer. He has to be your Savior and your Lord before you're going to be able to see him impact your marriage. So my question for you, anyone at all that's here, my question is this. Are you here this morning? You've been here throughout this series. You've heard everything that we've talked about. And you would have to be honest and say, I am not a believer. I am outside of Christ. I have not given my life to him. He is not my Savior and Lord, but I need him to be. I want him to be today. Is there anyone that would say, yes, that's me, Pastor. Will you pray for me in that way? Anyone at all? Anybody? Okay? Then I'm going to go ahead and pray for you, my brothers and sisters, and I'm going to pray for myself. You pray for me. You pray for my marriage. I'll pray for yours. Let's lift each other up in prayer. Father, I thank you for your design, the, the, the perfect design for marriage. I thank you for giving us clear examples in Scripture of of how we're supposed to proceed with that, how we're supposed to function in our marriage, what what a marriage that truly operates by your design looks like and how how it should behave. Thank you for showing us what should not be part of that, what we should reject and get rid of in order to have the marriage that you have designed. Father, I thank you most of all for the ability through your spirit, whom we have in Jesus by committing our lives to him. Thank you for the the ability, the supernatural ability to have the marriages that you have designed and want us to have. Help us to surrender ourselves, to put ourselves last for the sake of our spouse, to love them, to respect them as we're called to, not just for our betterment, but for your glory, that we may picture the relationship that is intended between Christ and his church, us, his bride. May that be on display in our marriages, I pray. I ask this for my brothers and sisters. I ask this for myself, all in Jesus' name. Amen.